Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast, sponsored by Hunt to Eat and Filson. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and this time we are going to talk about scaled quail, also called blue quail. This is a particular species of quail that lives in the Chihuahuan Desert, which is to say the big, giant, deserty place from West Texas up through a little bit of Oklahoma, all the way down into Mexico, and out into New Mexico, a little piece of Arizona, and a little piece of Colorado. It's a very cool quail in that it's not only beautiful, but it is a runner. It is a difficult bird to hunt because it tends to run away rather than fly. And today we're going to be talking to an expert who is not only a PhD on scaled quail, he's also an outfitter, Ryan O'Shaughnessy of West Texas Outfitters. So without further ado, let's take it away. Welcome to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast, Ryan. I am very happy to have you on because I have been looking for a scaled quail expert, and it seems like I found one in, of all places, West Texas, which is one of the two or three epicenters of this bird, if I'm not wrong. So let's jump right in and talk about what your background is and and. How'd you get to West Texas and what you do there and how you and how you focus on scaled quail? Sure, Hank. Um, yeah, so obviously um, you and your listeners can probably tell from my, my accent that I'm not uh, a native um, in any regard. I actually uh, was born and raised in Southern Africa, um, born in Zimbabwe, and then uh, went to school in South Africa. Um, my dad lived up in Botswana and has been in the uh, safari industry there for Oh, gosh, most of my life, uh, 35 years now, I think. Um, I actually met my wife. She is American. I met her over in Botswana. She was out there with the Peace Corps. I was finishing up my master's degree at the time, and she said, hey, well, uh, you want to come home with me? And uh, and I did. Um, and that was, uh, oh, gosh, 10, 11 years ago now. So we moved to Florida originally. That's where where my wife, Kara, uh, is from. Um and from there, we popped up to Illinois, to Southern Illinois University in Carbondale for the uh, Salukis, the mighty Salukis. I'm, I'm impressed that you knew that. <laughs> um, and I uh, finished my Ph.D. up there working on waterfowl. Ah, OK. Yeah. Um, and then uh, funny enough, the um, my advisor on my master's um, was an American guy who's um, affiliated with New Mexico State. And he was friends with um, my boss out, out here at Sol Ross. Uh, they were looking for a postdoc. And um, Jimmy called me up and he said, Ryan, listen, man, I, th- I think you'd really like um, that corner of the world down there. He said, I think I think you should put in and, and see if you can get an interview and go out there and, and take a look at the place. And, um, yeah, it was love at first sight. Came out here, just just fell in love with the area. Um, nice small town that we live in. And um, since then, yeah, um, three baby girls have all been born and raised right here in Alpine. Wow. So, I mean, it makes sense because that part of Texas looks quite a bit like Zimbabwe or the Orange Free State. They both look more or less the same way. I've been, I've actually spent some time in both South Africa and and Zimbabwe. So, yeah, fantastic. Uh, yeah, fantastic. And you're quite right, Hank. I mean, I I said to my 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 parents when I moved out here, I said, you know, if if you'd made me close my eyes and you you drop me off out here or or you know somewhere in South Africa, it would have taken me a, a good while to figure out um, which place I was in um, because they were so similar. I know I went there in 1995 and it was I was like wait this looks like Montana. 
Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> so before we actually get into the scale quail, I'd be interested. Do you grow up hunting birds? So I did. Um, again, like I say, my, my, my dad and my stepmother um, have been in the safari industry, gosh, for as long as I can remember. Um, and, you know, I can remember as a child in, in Botswana, back then we were able to get um, what they would call um, ration permits to be able to shoot game for camp meat um, because some of these places were so remote there was no ways that you would be able to get into the store and back. And um, heck, I mean, we would drive around and, you, you know, you'd shoot a buffalo or a, or a kudu for, for cat meat. But funny enough, as far back as I can remember, chasing guinea fowl and Franklin and game birds was always what I preferred to do. Um, so, yeah, I grew up doing it, um, you know, shooting game birds in, in Africa but it wasn't until I moved over here where I really got that exposure to, gosh, to all the equipment and the, the tactics and the resources, including dogs that 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 we have here in the U.S. I think wing shooting is probably Africa's best kept secret. Uh, some of the areas that I would go hunting, you never saw another person uh, hunting game birds out there. And gosh, just off the top of my head, I think on any given day during the season, you would have a chance at, at somewhere between 12 and 15, 16 different species. Crazy. All legal. Yeah. Right? So that, that I think really nurtured my love for, uh, for game birds. I had a couple of dogs um, over there, but again, like I say, uh, the resources available to you are, are, are somewhat limited. Um, so it wasn't until I, I moved over here to the U.S. about 11 years ago where where I realized, holy cow, this whole gun dog world is 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 a world unto itself. Um, and and so um, now I'm sitting here and I've I've got 16 dogs in my kennel house. Oh my god, <laughs> that's a lot of dogs. I imagine they're all different ages too. They are. They are. They uh, gosh, they they range right now. I'm trying to think what we've got from from eight months to about eight and a half years in in our kennel right now. I guess you have to retire the old ones too. Yep, yep. One of them uh, we've just retired. She's our our, our only Weimaraner. She she's the old girl in the kennel. Um, um, so she's uh, she's retired. She's actually moved inside the house right now. So she's loving life. I bet we're gonna get into dogs in a little bit. But uh, so yeah, actually, it's, it's funny you talked about that. There is a I've got a colleague of mine who's a taxidermist in Cape Town. Yep. And he and he has invited me to hunt ducks and upland birds in south africa and it's funny i talk to holly all the time like you know what like i'm i'm not really i'm not really a big safari guy right but i would totally go to africa to chase rabbits and and squirrels and and game birds like i'm a i'm kind of a small game junkie and i see and you know it's funny you you watch the tv shows and you know they're taking pictures of lions and giraffes and that kind of thing and i'm always looking at the birds in the background yep as am i hang so so <laughs> we're cut from the same cloth we're like hey there's egyptian geese in the background of that picture you know even driving around here buddies of mine they get all excited when they see a nice big mule deer but i, I get excited when i see a, a covey of quail flushing right it's it's super cool so I will preface this conversation by saying that of all of the quail species, I have shot all of the quail species in North America. Um, but 
of all of them that I've hunted, I know the least about scaled quail. So my one and only experience with blues or scales is in South Texas near McAllen. When I, we're basically, I was a guest on a guy's ranch and we were hunting all kinds of things. And he happened to have scale quail on his ground and like, well, I've never shot a scale quail. So it wasn't exactly the most dramatic hunt in the world. It was, I went out with my, I, I shoot a 20 gauge over and under and, uh, and I went just out walking around among the cactus and the, and the tall grass and then a bunch flushed and I shot two and came home and had lunch. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I really want to get into that, but I, I, I know they're a different bird. They're, they're kind of a grass bird versus the, the, well, you explained it to me. So, so what's scaled quail habitat? versus say bob whites on the east or say gambles or merns quail on the west so they're sure. kind of the in-between bird yeah so you are scaled quail um you know i'm sure you noticed when you were chasing them in the in the cactus their their first and primary mode of of escape from predators is to run mm-hmm. and so because of that they tend to uh, prefer that more open country where where visibility around them is really good um, you know so they're looking for areas that are maybe 50 to 60 percent open cover um, where they can see predators coming and they can run off if they need to now that's not to say that they don't need cover because they, they certainly do and they'll duck into it to get away from from predators like hawks and, and coyotes and bobcats. And they certainly need that cover to roost in at night. But you're not going to find them in that really, really thick stuff that you can find your bobwhite in down in South Texas, um, you know, where your dog runs off 20 yards and you can't see the dog anymore. You won't find them in that really thick riparian vegetation that, that, that you tend to find your gambles in. And you tend not to find them in your higher elevation um um, the cedar oak moths like you find your moon's quail either interesting i i guess they seem to me like so gambles is a sonoran bird so is yep. so, are, so are, and moon's is kind of the sky island bird right and i get the sense that the the scaled is the the he's the quail of like of yuccas of like the chihuahuan desert yep yep i was going to say that i was going to say the chihuahuan desert um they they seem to to live where just about any other ground-dwelling bird can't because everything pokes and sticks you and, and is rocky out here, but they love it. They, uh, I guess roadrunners are out there too. So, And, and if, if, I'm, if I'm not wrong, I think roadrunners uh, eat quail, don't they? So they, they do, Hank, and there's, there's been quite a bit of um, controversy over that, certainly um, in, in quail hunting circles. I'm not sure that they have a tremendous impact on your quail populations, but they certainly do eat baby quail. Um, and, and I will stand by that statement. A lot of people will, will argue with me on that, but I've seen it happen. I wouldn't have believed it unless I'd seen it with my own eyes. Um, you know, a lot of guys will, will say, oh, well, you know, a single roadrunner might take out a whole clutch of, of quail. I think that maybe happens very rarely. 
Um, they're more opportunistic feeders, I would say, your, your mm. road runners. But yeah, they, they certainly do predate on the odd chick when they can. Okay, so it's the chicks that they'll go after. Because my it, friend Jonathan Odell, he's a biologist in Arizona. And Jonathan Odell, had there was one resident roadrunner that lived around where they were rearing some quail. And he called it the QEB, the quail yeah. bastard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. And it was like this one particular roadrunner that had figured things out. Yeah, they're, they're smart little birds. And, and I will say that that oftentimes when I see roadrunners, I'll, I'll start to get real vigilant for quail um, and vice versa, um, particularly during the breeding season and the nesting season when you've got those little baby quail running around. Um, often, often you'll see a roadrunner hanging around in the area just waiting for that opportunity to, to run in and, and snatch a little fledgling up. Interesting. So their food habits of all quail seem to be more or less the same. So they all seem to be, you know, in the spring they eat a lot of bugs, uh, and then th- for the really the rest of the year they eat primarily seeds and some forbs. And is there are there plants out there that if you're say walking around you say, oh wow, this is this is the thing that the scale quail really loves to eat, and so you can be more vigilant. Yeah, so you hit the the, the nail on the head there. Um, Forbes, if if you shoot a mature bird during during the fall and you, and you open up that crop, there is a lot of green leaf uh, matter in that in that crop, um, and primarily that'll be your little forbs. So if I'm walking around a tank where you've got uh, nice green forb growth, that always looks really really good to me. Uh, your grasses, your grass seeds, always a really big one. Um, like you said, grasshoppers, heck, if I'm out running the dogs and there's grasshoppers flying around, that gets me really excited. Um, like you said, too, Hank, just like all the other quail species, there, there tends to be a shift to a larger proportion of insects in the diet during spring. I think that can go up to about 20% insects in the diet. And primarily, you'll see that shift in the diet um, in the females. They're trying to pack on a lot of protein uh, for nesting and and producing those eggs. And then the little chicks, when they're hitting the ground, they're really trying to hit those those grasshoppers as real energy-rich food sources um, while they're growing, too. And then they'll start to transition more into vegetation and seeds uh, as they get older. In Arizona, which is most of my arid quail experiences in Arizona. They say that, I think they, what is it? It's winter rains for Mern's quail and summer rains for Gamble's quail. Yeah. I think that's right. So what, what is the good indicator in scale quail country for like, oh, it's going to be a good hatch? So similar to your Gambles, um, it's our summer rains here. Um, Out in West Texas, we have what we refer to as our summer monsoon which in a year like this year would be very misleading. I think we've only had about six and a half inches this year. Um, But usually around June, middle June, I've heard people say July 4th, we really want the rains to start by then. Um, But but certainly irrespective of, of, of the date, we're looking for that good summer rainfall. Okay. So it's, uh, it is very similar to the, the gambles then. And that, and that, you know, this Sadly, this year has been terrible for monsoons throughout the Southwest. I mean, Arizona had terrible, terrible yeah. rains. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, but like you say, very, very similar to your gambles. Um, you, you know, we have gambles out here too, closer to to the river along the Rio Grande. Hmm. Um, we'll get into uh, gambles every now and then. Um, certainly not in in the levels that you would expect in Arizona and say southwestern New Mexico, but um, but we do overlap on that gambles range. But uh, yeah, take home message: we need it to rain during summer. Mm, gotcha. I'd like to take a moment to thank Hunt to Eat for sponsoring the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. Hunt to Eat is a casual hunting and angling apparel company based on community, real food, and conservation. Head over to hunttoeat.com and check out the Hank Shaw t-shirt collection. You'll also find wild game recipes, hats, and other kinds of gear, including aprons with the Hunter Angler Gardener Cook logo on them. If you use the code HANKSHAW at checkout, you will get 10% off your order. Thanks again to Hunt to Eat, and back to the podcast. So I understand that while there's no shortage of, of scale quail, um, that their populations are slowly declining, and that's by, from habitat loss, isn't it? So I would say just like every other quail species, yes, that their populations are slowly declining, um, particularly on the, the, I would say, the periphery of their ranges where you're getting more and more urban development and, and potentially even your oil and gas development. Um where we are, we're very fortunate in, in that we're still in the heart of ranching company, uh, our country. Um, a lot of big, wild, beautiful, open uh, ranches out here that that have not had that development yet, that in energy development. So our populations have remained stable, um, 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 notwithstanding the weather, of course. Um, but but yeah, just like every other population of of quail, they they're they're on a slow decline. Talk to me about how uh, natural or oil and gas affects quail, because I just finished doing a podcast about the sage grouse, and energy development is a huge limiting factor for sage grouse because of noise, for one thing, the noise of the right. of the the rigs, and then uh, the fact that they're they're big. And so anything that's really tall, uh, a hawk can can hang out on and look down on you. And yep. then the, the worst enemy of a sage grouse is a raptor. And is it similar with a scale quail? Yeah, it's very similar with, with, with your scale quail. I would say the majority of predation on your scale quail comes from aerial predators. Mm. Um, I, I would think, too, that with your, your oil and gas development, and this is just my anecdotal thoughts on it, Typically, um, when you get your oil and gas development taking place on on private property, a lot of times those ranchers who who are now drawing those paychecks from oil and gas royalties, because of the disturbance on the landscape and the increased traffic, they'll tend to pull their cattle from that landscape or that particular pasture. When they do that, one of the first things that they'll do is they'll shut off water. Um, you do hear people talking about these desert quail and saying, oh, well, they don't really need the water. Well, in my opinion, that, that that's both true and not true. They can get a lot of metabolic water from, from the foods that they're eating, but it's going to be a heck of a lot easier and they're going to survive a lot better if there is freestanding water available. So it, it's just this culmination of effects that just makes it 
just that much more harder for these little guys to survive on the landscape. Um, as you and many of your, your listeners know, um, you know, I, I heard a great saying the other day, if, if you find a, a year old quail, well, that quail has been dead for a long time, if, if, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah, I mean, all of the gallinaceous birds, to my knowledge, I mean, there's a few exceptions, like sage grouse can live for a few years, and there have been really, really old spruce grouse, oddly, um, because they're they're notoriously difficult. It's funny, you know, they're one of the easiest birds to hunt because they just stand there and look at you, but their ability to evade natural predators allows them to live a little bit longer than all the other gallinaceous birds. But in general, I mean, it's been my experience that that's kind of true with pheasants and all grouse and most of the quail and they live short hard fast lives right right um uh, you know when we're shooting birds um i'll often get clients asking me hey you know well well how old is this bird um you know when you're looking at at, at the coverts and you can tell whether they've got that little white buffing or not you can tell well heck you know this is a young of the year bird versus a bird that's that's probably a mature bird and maybe about a year old, but but that's about it. All of our knowledge comes from birds that we obviously put transmitters on. Uh, I was going to ask you, how, do you guys do transmitters or banding? Right. So so we use um, transmitters quite a bit um, just because we, we haven't had much luck with the banding in terms of finding a lot of those, uh-huh. those dead birds. Um, but the backpacked birds, heck, if you've got a bird that's making it to a year and a half, two years old, that is a really old scaled quail. Interesting. Uh, and, and he's doing really well. I'd say the average lifespan is is probably eight months to a year. Yeah, I've heard that with my, a lot of different quail species. One funny banding note is, so Holly, my, my girlfriend, she used to band uh, doves for the state of California. Yep. And... She stopped doing it two years ago, two or three years ago. God, it could be three years ago now. And there is still one banded male that comes to the backyard almost every day. And awesome. <laughs> so he's he's a four-year-old bird uh, at least. Wow. wow. I'm, my guess is that in captivity, a scaled quail can live probably for six or seven years, but – yeah, yeah, I would, you know, in captivity um, with with a good, reliable um, source of food and water and then obviously the protection. I think the protection is, is probably the most critical um, um, aspect of it, uh, particularly from weather. Um, mm. Hank, that, that's the one thing that I think a lot of people don't take into account, but those really, really hard freezes that we get or hailstorms, they are really hard on the populations. Interesting. Because that's the same thing with uh, with Mern's quail in southern Arizona. They, uh, they, I think most quail will huddle up. They'll all go back to back and sit in a circle like the penguins do. Correct. And, and we've seen that with, with scaled quail. Um, and it's an interesting thing when you see your nice big coveys of, say, 20 to 30 birds, um, they're not all huddling up and, and roosting under one bush altogether. Uh, they'll, they'll break up into groups of, say, six, seven, eight birds where they can huddle in and not really have any exposed um, flesh feathers to, to the elements. Um, you know, as you can imagine, if, if you try to put a or arrange a circle of 30 birds, there's going to be a big open space in the middle, right? Right. Um, but if you cut that down to seven or eight birds and you arrange them in a nice tight huddle, that, that thermoregulatory effects are a lot more efficient. Hmm. 
So here's a, here's a, this leads to a good hunting question. So I had talked to Dwayne Elmore, who's a, a bobwhite biologist, and he said that in a place like where you are in West Texas, where they're, you're not at the periphery of their range, yeah. that you the old thing about like, oh, you're going to shoot the covey out. So you know, only shoot that covey once a year or, or whatever, and you got to preserve your quail, da-da-da-da. He says that when you are with bobwhites and you're in contiguous bobwhite habitat, that it doesn't matter because those the those flocks and coveys are, are fluid. He says where it does matter is if you are hunting a covey on an isolated piece piece of habitat. And I was wondering if it's a similar thing with scaled quail. Absolutely. Um, if you're on a nice big contiguous uh, property where you know you've got multiple coveys, those birds tend to, if, if you were just to sit for an afternoon and say watch them come into a little water tank, you may have three or four coveys start to walk in from all different directions. They all muddle together and then they all head out in their separate ways. Now, it, it's not like there are these independent family units that are arriving together and leaving together. You're getting a mixing of the individuals as they come in and then they depart. But what I will say is, and I think this is another um a common misconception, particularly when it comes to game birds, um, and, and I've heard a lot of landowners say this, uh, particularly, you know, to me when I've been trying to secure more leases, you'll hear people say things like, oh, well, I don't want you to shoot my quail because I want to look after the quail. I hear that, that a lot in California, by the way. Right. Um, and that in itself is is kind of a misconception. And that goes back to what we were discussing previously on, on the very high mortality rate that these birds have. <clears throat> you know, they're what we call your R-selected species. Um, and, and R, you know, I always say easy way to remember it, R for reproduction. You know, they've got very low adult survival, but tremendously high uh, reproductive output. So a mama quail, I mean, she's, she's laying, gosh, up to 12 eggs in a clutch. And if conditions are right, she may nest three times in a season, in a breeding season. Hmm, I didn't know that. Yeah. So so right there, I mean, you've got one mama quail that could potentially be putting up to 36 new baby quail on the ground. Um, we know that they're not all going to survive, right? They're going to die from things like weather and predation. And, and so when people say, hey, I don't want you to shoot my birds because I want them to survive, we start talking about something called compensatory mortality. Mm -hmm. And and what we're really just saying is, well, heck, you know, your average quail is going to die within a year. So whether it's me taking that bird from hunter harvest or a coyote taking that bird, that bird essentially is, is lost anyways. Yeah, you see that a lot in, in wildlife management all over because you know the the goal of, of good regulated hunting is for it to be it. Correct me if I think the term's wrong. It's compensatory, not additive. Uh, correct. Yep. Correct. Yeah. So like if you're if hunting starts to be additive mortality, then you got to scale back. 
A- absolutely, and 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 like you say, additive, just like the 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 name suggests, that is adding to the mortality rate. Where we tend not to see that in 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 things like quail hunting. Um, you, you know, out here, you, you've got to think there are just tremendous tremendous safety margins built into the hunting system. So where we are in in Texas, we can take up to fifteen quail per hunter per day. So let me stop you for a second. <coughs> sure. Okay. I have shot a 15 bird limit of quail exactly once in my entire life. It's <laughs> like, <laughs> right. <Yep. laughs> like it's, it seems to be like, okay, it's, it's like the snow goose limit where it's, it's 20 birds for us in, in the West. And like, really, are you really going to shoot 20 snow geese in one day? I mean, right, maybe right. it's, I mean, what's what's a normal bag for a for a scale? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> that's the million dollar question that that we get asked by clients all the time. Um, um, you you know, I hate it when guys ask me, oh, well, what's the limit? You, you know, and you kind of have to say fifteen, but then I I immediately try to say, hey, but even when we've had just off the chart good years, it's only a handful of guys every year that are actually able to shoot a limit. Yeah, I mean, because not only are there, you know, you got to see a lot of quail because, you know, you figure there's four guns in any given group, but you've got to shoot the quail. Right. And and, and that's and that's where where it comes in. I would say if, if I look back over our numbers over the years, our guys are probably averaging, uh, I'd say, five to seven quail per gun per day. Yeah, that seems reasonable. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, you, you do get those guys who are just crack shots, you, you know, and then they, they might walk away with, with 14, 15 birds. Um, but then you get some guys who come out and are quite happy to shoot three, four boxes of shells and, and take two birds home with them. Oh, man, that's like the dove hunters. You know, yep. I think the national average of, of shells per dove is somewhere around seven, which I find amazing. Like, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Like seven? Oh my! I mean, I'm I'm a, I'm apparently a better shot than that because typically it's five for the first day and then I narrow it down about two. Right, right. You know, you chase these quail a lot. Have you chased the other species in the, in North America? I, I have. I've I've been fortunate enough to um to go out to Arizona and chase gambles and moons. Uh, same in New Mexico and. Uh, and even Bob White um, here in Texas. So I will ask you, what is the, so I like the asking this question of people who have wide range in a particular set of species. What makes scale quails different in this? How is their, their attitude, their character, their personality? How are, how are they different from say their neighboring quail? I would definitely say um, your scaled quail, and, and, and I'm going to preface my answer by saying that even amongst the, the, the multitude of African game birds that, that I've hunted um, throughout my life, I still think that your scaled quail are probably one of the toughest game birds that you can hunt. To, to me, um, that's partly because of their running nature. And it, it's also because of the habitat that they live in. You know, certainly when you compare them to, to Merns and to Bob White, if you were to bust that covey and you see those birds flush and land, chances are you walk up to that area and those birds are going to be right around there. Whereas these dang scaled quail, they might flush 50, 60 yards, but when they're hitting the ground, they are running. Ah. And so when you, when you get right back up there with the dogs – 
well, heck, there's no telling where those birds are. Um, you know, we're we're averaging, Hank, I'm going to say eight to 12 miles in a day. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when you come out hunting, hunting with us after these birds. Could be worse. You could be doing the same thing for ptarmigan at 13,000 feet. <laughs> well, that's that's true. I was going to say um, um, ptarmigan and chucker may, may be the two game birds that, uh, that that have these scalies beat on the ground in terms of, of hunting difficulty. Oh, my. Chuckers are hateful gray birds. Hateful. Yep. <laughs> is, there a, is there a perdix species in Africa or is it just Eurasian? So we have a couple of species. Um, we, we, we get uh, what's called a, a button quail. Hmm. But then outside of that, gosh, we've got about seven or eight different, um, and I'm talking about Southern Africa, uh, seven or eight species of Franklin that you can hunt. Um, of course, there's guinea fowl. Everybody knows guinea fowl. Yes. Um, gosh, maybe same thing, about seven, eight different species of dove, eight species of, of waterfowl. Um, uh, we get sand grouse. There's three species of sand grouse. So, yeah, like I say, it's just a, a plethora of options available. What would a Franklin equate to in the United States? I would say in size, probably a chucker. Okay. Um, but in in hunting style, probably most similar to pheasant, I would say. Gotcha. And unless you're hunting your gray wing Franklin um, in the Eastern Cape, uh, you, you'll be in beautiful high elevation grasslands up in the mountains. So so they would probably be pretty close to, to chucker at that point. Hmm. Back to scalies. If you are going to recommend somebody to, you know, if, if I got to get my scale quail, blah, blah, blah. So I'm, I'm working yep. on this lamb. I need to know what do I need to know to hunt successfully that that's a great question um hank you know there's a lot of um i would say misconceptions about hunting scaled quail there are a lot of guys out here in texas that will flat out not believe you if if you said that that you're going hunting scalies with dogs um people just believe that the these birds run far too much to, to to be able to hunt them over a dog well, obviously, we would disagree with that because we, we do it year in and year out. Uh, we, we hunt them the good old fashioned way. So my my first bit of advice is if you wanted to do that, would, would be to, to either hunt with somebody who's got dogs that are used to hunting these birds or get a dog that's really used to hunting running birds like maybe pheasants um, or, or chucker. Um, the next thing would be to, to get out to some country where that, that holds a lot of birds. I mean, that might be silly to say, but, you know, you can go out to some of the public lands out here. And, and I, I guess the difference between public and private land, we, we can host a whole nother podcast on that down the line. But these birds, if they are pressured, heck, you're going to have a real hard time getting within 80 yards of them. Um, again, that's just due to their running nature. If, if they feel pressured, they're going to get out of town. Hmm. Um, so, so trying to find unpressured populations. Look, I know that's, that's, that's the goal of every wild bird hunter, right? Um, but I think with, with these birds and their running nature, that, that, that really becomes maybe more important than a lot of your other species. 
It's interesting because uh, the public-private situation in Texas is very different from where it is in, say, New Mexico or Colorado or Arizona. Absolutely. I think we're, what, 94 95% private lands um, here in Texas. Mm-hmm. Although I think pretty much the best of the public land in Texas is out by you. Yeah, so we, we're fortunate out here where um, Jeepers, not including the national park, I think there's close to 400,000 acres of public land available. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's starting to it's starting to get into more of this desert southwest kind of a landscape versus, you know, say, east Texas or even south Texas, which is almost exclusively private. Right, right. Yep. Hey, everybody. I'd like to take this time to thank Filson for sponsoring the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. As you may know, I wear their gear in the field all the time. I love their vests. I love their outerwear. Their tin cloth jacket is awesome. Definitely take a look at their collection of gear. A lot of it is new. A lot of it has been around for decades, and all of it is super, super high quality. If you are in the market for something to wear on your upland hunt this fall, absolutely check out Filson. I can totally vouch for them from personal experience. Filson was founded in Seattle in 1897 when they started outfitting prospectors for the Klondike Gold Rush. And ever since then, they've been committed to creating best-in-class gear for the world's toughest people in the most unforgiving conditions. All right, you've mentioned dogs. I know everybody gets their, their tits in a ringer over like, oh, it's this breed versus that breed. But let's you can talk about breeds all you want, but design for me a perfect scaled quail hunting dog. What, what would it have to do? So I think my attitude on that sort of dog may be a little different from, from say, a weekend hunter. Um, you know, obviously being an outfitter, I expect uh, a little more from, from my dogs. Um, but out here, because of the open country, Hank, i got to tell you, I like a big running dog. Um, I want a dog that is going to cover a lot of ground for me. And, and I don't mind whether he's out there 200, 300 yards. Hmm. Obviously, when he locks up on point, I need that dog to be rock solid on point. Um, th- th- that dog's got to give me and my guys enough time to walk over there um, to, to, to get behind the dog and into position to, to shoot any birds that, that he might, may have pinned down. More than that, um, my ideal dog, like if, if, if you took me to the, uh, to the quail dog superstore and I was looking on the shelves, <laughs> um, I, I like my dogs to be collar conditioned. Um, and, and I'm not necessarily talking about used to, to stimulation. Um, more importantly, I handle my dogs to a tone. Um, there's, there's nothing worse, in my opinion, than going out with a buddy who's got a dog who, who isn't collar conditioned to a tone and, and he's yelling and screaming and blasting on a whistle all day. Um, oh, Duke, yeah. You to fight a headache by the time you get home. I didn't know your dog was called Douchebag. Yeah, it's yeah. not. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> um, yeah. So other than that, you know, a dog that's going to handle uh, and 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 listen to me um, to the beep and hold steady is is really all I'm looking for. Um, a lot of people, I think, get intimidated by big running dogs, and and usually that's that's a a function of the environment. You know, if I was hunting in thicker South Texas vegetation, yeah, I would want a closer working dog, obviously. Um, but for me, a scaled quail dog, big running, solid on point, 
responsive to a caller. And I would imagine also you want them to be good in hot weather and probably not with a wiry coat that that picks up all the choya and everything else, right? And and that's 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 a great um, observation. So uh, when you and I first got chatting, I'd, I'd mentioned that I have a Weimaran. I've got one Weimaraner and then a couple of Britneys. Um, and then the rest are all English pointers. I knew um, it. I knew you were going to say English pointers because <laughs> when you said big running dog that wants to, all the trucker guys in Nevada are like, yep, English pointer because the, the English pointer runs up the mountain and then you've got to run up after the English pointer. But yeah, it can be like 200 yards. Absolutely. And, and now, look, I'll be honest, Owen, I have a, a German short hair and, and people always say to me, OK, Ryan, well, you know, which is the better breed? Um, the, the Britneys out here, because we have a lot warmer weather than most other parts of the country, um, with their thicker coat, I, I would rule Britneys out. They are fantastic dogs, though. Don't get me wrong. Um, um, my male Mickey and my little female Carrie, uh, I mean, they'll they'll take on any dog out there. Uh, it's just that with that heavier coat, they do get hotter faster. Mm. Um, between the pointers and, and my German short hair, um, Hanser, you know, I couldn't pick a winner. Hank, I, I just, to me, I love seeing that long straight tail on, uh-huh. on English um, up in the air. And so that's my personal preference. Um, the the Weimaraner, she, she she was a fantastic dog. She's, she's getting a little old now. But out here in this country, she's just she's big and she's dark right so she fatigues a heck of a lot faster um than, than the smaller bred dogs interesting because i would have thought that a, a slick haired dog like a weimaraner would be a good choice because well i mean that is if you can actually get one that hunts it's well and, and more rare these days that's it you know we've, we've, we've been fortunate with her um you know she doesn't run as big as the other dog she's an excellent retriever um, but her dark coat, she she does overheat very very quickly compared to 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 the others. She just, uh, you know, if she's running ten minutes. The, the the pointers are putting putting out like eighty ninety minutes um, ah. in comparison. So, so I don't hunt with a dog because, uh, well, other than living life in the time of Corona, uh, I normally travel just too much to be for it to be fair to a dog. So I have become a very good dogless hunter infinitely aware that i can outlast any dog out there because i can sweat and the dog can't right so what would your tips be for a dogless scaled quail hunter oh boy um have have a good set of track shoes (laughs) um but outside of that hank we're in the desert everything needs water um so my probably single best piece of advice is to hunt around water sources uh nine times out of ten you're gonna find birds near a tank that makes sense yeah i mean there's really really no um no mystery to it um you know with our dogs and when they are pointing birds Generally, if you can break up that covey, you'll get singles and pairs. They'll sit and hold um, a lot better than when that whole covey is together. So if you're out there by yourself and you do happen to kick up a covey, head to the areas where you've seen your singles and your pairs go down. Mm. Chances are that if you bump a bird that is held tight the first time, 
and, and he flies off and, and you miss your shot, if you get a good location on where that bird's gone down, if he's held well that first time, chances are he's going to hold well again. So go after that bird rather than trying to leave him and move after the, um, the, the rest of the covey. That's a good that's a good piece of advice. Uh, so here's a question. Most Western quail do not flush as as a unit the way bobwhites do. But yep. I, I'm not entirely sure where scale quail fit into that. You know, your, your, your scalies, you can get really nice big uh, covey flushes out of them. Um, it, but like I say, it's, it, that's usually your first time that you get on the birds when they're all huddled together under a big mesquite or, 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 or um, you know, some other big bush. They'll, they'll flush together as a unit. Um, it's after that when you'll start to get them breaking up and flushing in, in smaller groups. Gotcha. See, so I hunt primarily California quail and mountain quail, and neither of those flush all at once, ever, ever. So like it's always the rookies who like take a shot at the first flush and like I'm waiting for I'm gonna wait for the the the, the guys who are tailing by and then the best thing to do is after like two or three guys have shot turn around and then because there's gonna be one that's gonna flush right out the back of you and yep. then you'll usually have a clean shot at it. Yep. Yeah, the, I was gonna say there usually is a straggler. Um, so if, if that first uh, cubby rise gets out out of there, um, hang on a minute because the, invariably there's gonna be that one guy who didn't get the memo who's gonna flush late. Yeah. <laughs> How about calls? So calling as walking around in valley quail or mountain quail country, and and even actually the 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 gambles quail as well. The uh, ability to use a quail call to get them to reveal themselves is, can actually be very effective. And I'm just not aware that they do that with, with scalies. I can say that, that I've tried it all. Um, I've tried uh, doing a little mouth call. I've tried throwing a frisbee over the covey to get them to sit, uh, you know, to imitate a, a predator. That's um, hilarious. So, so that kind of sit. Um, but you spend a lot of time retrieving a frisbee and not much time retrieving downed birds. <laughs> um, if, if anybody listening to the show um, has any success with that, I would love to hear about it, uh, Hank. Um, but no, my, my opinion on that with everything that we've tried is um, you know, people have even said, use a hawk call, try to try to get on a hawk call because they'll think there's a predator and, and they'll sit tight too. But I have never seen any of that work with, with any regularity at all. Hmm. Are they a talkie bird? They can be. Yeah. First thing in the morning and in the evening, you'll, you'll get a couple of males um, sitting up on top of Choya and they'll be calling. Uh, so they can be very vocal. Um, you know, often they'll give themselves away that way. Uh, so, so yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah. So our valley quail are very talky, but our mountain quail are not. Okay. So mountain quail. I mean, you'll hear them when they're freaked out, but you can you can wander around the Sierra Nevada all day long, and you might hear one talk once. Okay. Yeah. When when you Get on a covey. Um, I'm, I'm very bad at, at, at impersonating quail, but they do a very short, shrill little screech when 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 they're alarmed. Um, and and so oftentimes when you're walking behind these birds and they're running on the ground through the brush and you've got your dogs relocating on them, you'll hear this very short, shrill little little call. 
um, which I like because it, it, it lets me know exactly <laughs> where, where those birds have gone. Well, I'll pull it. I'll put a, uh, a bunch of scale quail sounds in the show notes for this so people can play them uh, and, and not hear us try to imitate quail. Excellent. Excellent. Because I think, um, you know, if I try to imitate a, a quail, it's probably going to sound like a, a, a drunk chicken, I would imagine. <laughs> well, it's like the only the only good bird that I can imitate is the Eurasian collar dove because it sounds like it sounds like a seabird or a dying penguin. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's the weirdest thing. It's like it doesn't sound anything like any other dove, and it's just like this. Ah, yeah, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get to the 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 eternal upland game bird question that I ask every single episode. Uh, do you ever pluck your quail when you get them? Yes, um, I do, um, and it, it, it very much just depends on on what our clients want. You know, in in, in the really good years where where we've we've harvested harvested a good batch of birds throughout the day, um, usually then we'll just breast those birds out. Um, but other than you know, other than that, when when, when we've you know, shot, I don't know, 10 to 20 birds. Yeah, we'll, we'll pluck them, I'll pluck them, um, and then spatchcock them. Gotcha. The iron rule of plucking an upland bird that I have learned through bitter experience <laughs> is that there are only two ways to pluck an upland bird. The second after you killed it, you know, within the next, I mean, within all reality, within the next 15 minutes or so, they have to still be warm. Or you need to put them in the refrigerator and then let them sit for two to three to four days. Because if you try to get them when everybody wants to pluck a bird, which is to say that night after you're done with a hunt or the yeah. next morning, they're still in rigor and the you will tear, tear, tear that skin like nobody's business and you'll become super mad and you'll never want to do it again. Right. And and uh, I would say that that latter is, is generally my experience because uh, our clients might be wanting to hit the road the next morning. And so while we're having a couple of beers back at the rig, we'll start trying to pluck the birds. And I would say invariably um, we'll end up just skinning that bird, mm-hmm. which, which, as you know, causes some um, issues down the line when it comes down to, to, to cooking them. You've got to be real careful not to, not to dry that bird out. Yeah, I mean, it's virtually none of the birds in this entire – second season of hunt gather talk uh, get any kind of fat on them i mean it's just, it's kind of the nature of all upland game whether it's a mammal or a bird yep yep and and i hate i hate doing these birds injustice most people here i would say cook their scaled quail just like they would a dove they, they breast that bird out they put it with jalapeno cheese and wrap it in bacon Ah, the venerable uh, popper. Yep, and I think that just detracts from the from the taste of the bird. Um, my wife and I, we really like uh, making quail pot pies. Uh, mm. At the end of the season, we've got a bunch of quail built up. We'll 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 shred that quail meat, cook it up, and and make a whole series of little pot pies that we can have for lunch over the next few days. That is supremely British Commonwealth. <laughs> Well, I was going to say with a cup of hot tea and maybe a gin, uh, gin and tonic. What? So the single greatest food item I ate when I was hunting in New Zealand were their meat pies. There were yep. everything else in New Zealand was like, yeah, it's okay. The meat pies were amazing. Probably my two hardest transitions since since moving over here from 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 the colonies 
is no hot tea and no meat pies. So you do have great meat pies in southwest Texas. They're called empanadas. Well, yeah, yeah. You, you, you are right. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I would just, all I would do if I was in your spot is I would make you do your same pot pie filling and then may put them in into empanadas. Or if you want to go full on British, put them into a pasty. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we usually put them in into a pasty. Yeah. It's just a question of different, the different dough and, and, you know, you could do all, all of them. Although there is something to be said for a fried flour empanada which is they're pretty epic well you're making me hungry now hank so this is the coolest thing about the quail species though it's like uh, you know i did a an episode about doves a couple weeks ago and doves are a little bit more tricky because you can stew them it's you know it's not it's not necessarily a sin against god and nature but they are really better done cooked medium whereas all the white meat birds like scale quail and all their all their cousins you can stew them much more successfully than you can say a pigeon or a dove or a duck you know i mean duck breasts stewed are vile now legs and wings on the other hand are are that's pretty much all i do with them but the other thing that's interesting i find about quail is and and i want to hear your opinion on this as well i have now eaten all eight species of, of north american quail and i don't notice a ton of difference even with the skin like I, I tend to find them like oh it's quail so slightly funky white meat chicken ish yeah um i i do think and and i do get this feedback a lot from our clients you know if we've got a few birds on the string by lunch um oftentimes i'll grab one or two of the birds off there and 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 cook those up for our little lunch um lunch appetizer and and i have had a lot of people comment and and state that they felt like the scaled quail was particularly gamey compared to say your bob white i think i would agree with that you know certainly compared to pheasant i'm just trying to think of of the most recent examples of game birds that i've eaten within a close enough time frame to to really compare scalies to but but i think i think your scaled quail does have a slightly more gamey taste compared to to say bob white and even gambles hmm i uh, i'm just gonna have to kill more scale quail and, and yeah, some taste yeah. test. give you an excuse to come out to west texas and chase some birds with us you know Funny you should mention that. I'm actually on a uh, – I have a – I do cooking schools that are also hunts. And oh, I have one in Oklahoma, in southwest Oklahoma, uh, in December. So it's primarily it's a deer hunt. And then – but after that, I'm headed down, straight down to south of San Antonio to hunt with a friend there of various random creatures. And then I'm heading home. So home is for me is Northern California. So it's a 4,000 mile round trip road trip. And hell, if I'm going that far, my, it's not that hard to detour over to Alpine. No, we're not too far off I-10, Hank. So when, when you're um, heading back, please uh, give us a call and, and let's see if we can't get you um, out in the field with us. And, uh, and uh, I'm going to put the pressure on you to cook up some birds for us at lunchtime. That's a serious deal. Yeah, I mean, I'd be happy to cook. I mean, I love cooking quail. So you said pot pies. How how are, are there ways that you like to cook quail? 
I, I think in many ways I can be quite a traditionalist when it when it comes to to game meat. So I I don't like to detract from the true flavor of the meat as much as possible. Um, I do like smoking quail on on my barbecue. Um, I like grilling them. I must say though, and and I must confess that I need to be very careful when I do that. Um, because if I've got some friends over and I'm having a beer while I've got the, 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 the quail on the grill, I do tend to go a little long on the time and dry them out. <laughs> it could be a problem, especially if they're skinless. And, and I would, I think we both would agree that a skinless grilled quail can be delicious, but a skinless smoked quail, it's almost certainly going to be dry. Absolutely. And and so I, I find that I have to be very careful with that. Um, out in the field at lunchtime, I'll, um, I, I want to say fry cook, I guess, is, 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 is the most accurate description. Uh, just in a nice cast iron with, a, with a, a fine layer of oil on the bottom, put some herbs and spices in there and, and spatchcock those quail um, and, and grill them that way. Um, I love doing that in the field. Um, I always find it's a huge hit with our clients, you know, taking birds off, off the stringer that you've got in that morning and having a little appetizer seems to hit home with a lot of people. And I love the way those birds taste um, when they're fresh like that. Oh, yeah. Quail are very, very versatile. I mean, one of the things that if you're worried about dryness, obviously you can't do this in the field, but uh, you just brine the bird. Um, yep. You know, you're brining, yep. especially if it's skinless a brine of one quarter cup kosher salt to one quart of water and you brine that those birds overnight in that it does wonders for their ability to retain moisture oh fantastic yeah well, i'm gonna i'm gonna bear that in mind it's a super all it is is a as a quarter cup of i use diamond crystal kosher salt but morton's would work as well they have different salt levels in the sense because they're cut differently virtually every chef in america uses diamond crystal um so generally if you if you see generic kosher salt it's diamond crystal Okay. No, they're not. They're not paying me to say that. You're sure. Uh, <laughs> but but yeah, it's a simple brine. You don't need anything else other than the salt, um, because you're just really trying to help the bird retain more moisture when it's cooked. The legs, of course, another thing to do is you can cook the quail whole, and which I do quite often. But if you got a you know just a ton of them, you can separate and do a whole bunch of legs and then do a whole bunch of breasts in a different dish. And that's, that's another thing that I find very useful if you've got a, a bucket of them. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and I think that's, that's probably how one, one of the hardest things that I deal with every season. And, and, and I can understand it when we've got a pile of birds and people are tired at the end of the day and, and, we're trying to clean those birds and, and hit the road and guys are just like, Oh, well, you know, can you breast those out for me? I hate to waste the legs um, because I think they're just these these delicious little morsels that you can you can snack on um, at, at dinner time. But unfortunately, sometimes certain circumstances dictate that uh, you, you just don't have the time um, nor, nor the will of the clients to to sit there and um, clean those birds to the full extent. Right. I mean, I understand, too. Like that's that's why when I discovered the three day trick, um, you know, I'm about to go on a road trip you know, in a couple of weeks actually to North Dakota. And so that's another 35, 4,000 mile road trip, but I'll have, I'll be hunting all the whole way. So the, if, if a hunter, if one of your clients or anybody out there is interested in, in 
uh, you know, they feel the same way, you know, like, ah, oh, I'm really tired. I don't want to do this, you know, but I really feel bad about myself for not giving the bird the honor it deserves. Know that if you, if you have whole birds in the feathers, they don't even have to be gutted because quail mm-hmm. lose heat very rapidly. Just keep them dry and yep. cold. Okay. If you can find block ice, uh, block ice in your cooler and you have, you know, let's say two plastic bags so they don't get wet or something like that. Just rig something. They will sit in your cooler on the road for a week and they'll be fine. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. I'm not sure I would want to go more than a week, but sure. no problem. I've done it many times. And then by the time you then get a chance to pick them, they pluck so easy after four or five days. Okay. Excellent. So much easier. You could almost, you could almost have a situation where, you know, you could have like stunt birds or if you had a client who didn't want their birds or something, you could have them like pre-aged and ready to go for the next client. So that's, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's to serve them for lunches at the camp that it just, you get this rolling period, like, Oh, this, it's right, time right. to do those birds from two days ago. Right. Right. No, that's a great piece of advice, Hank. I'm definitely gonna gonna retain that little snippet of information for this this season. Yeah, I mean another kind of weird. It's a little weird, but it's good, um, especially because you're dealing with large numbers. I have done. I finally found a liver moose that I actually like, like a liver a liver pate. Yep. Um, I hate liver pate in general. Like it's just, it's not my thing. So you know, I've written four cookbooks, right? And the first one that actually has a liver pate is pheasant quail cottontail, the Upland okay. brother, because I finally came across a recipe that I actually want to eat, and it doesn't feel like an obligation, and sure. it involves cream cheese, of all <laughs> right. things. So I hate cream cheese and poppers, right? Uh, like, I use roasted garlic in for my poppers, so I don't like the cheese with the, the quail breast or the dove breast. What I do is I roast a bunch of heads of garlic and then squeeze all that garlic out before the hunt even begins. So then when you build your popper... Instead of the cream cheese, use that amazing squished roasted garlic, and it's way better. That that sounds delicious. So, and you're also heading into uh, like hatch chili season. Yep. So I, what I do is I will roast. I mean, I'm I if I see good hatch chilies, I I have control issues. I can't not buy them. <laughs> and you know, roast them all off. Roast them all off, and they freeze well. And here's another really cool thing. So just south of where you are in Chihuahua, there is a thing called Chiles Pasados. And Chiles Pasados is a, a, typically it's a green chili, but it can be a red as well. It is a roasted hatch chili, basically. So imagine that in your head, dehydrated. So you could have just buckets and buckets of these dehydrated chilies. And you rehydrate them, and they still retain a lot of their uh, structural integrity, and they never get as they never get as soft as a freshly roasted hatch chili. So All they right. make a perfect, perfect wrapper for a quail or a dove breast. So you see what I mean? So you like yeah. you rehydrate it, and it becomes it's it looks like chili leather when it's dried, but then it rehydrates well. But it's still firmer than a fresh chili would be. Okay. So those two things. So you got you put down a layer of bacon, because you gotta have bacon. Then you put a layer of you know this this rehydrated chili, and then what I would do is I would put the roasted garlic in there, and then your your quail breast or your dove breast. And if you if your clients demand poppers, do that popper, and their heads sure. will explode. Sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like this is the greatest thing ever, but. I mean, I definitely find that 
serving quail with things that are around it are um it's it's not only fun but it works together on the plate so one thing that you have in your part of the world that is a surprising delicious edible are choya buds yeah are you familiar with them I, I am. I've never tried them myself, but I've had numerous people from out here tell me about that. They So that it's the unopened flower buds of the choya. And typically you're going to want a staghorn choya or, but, you know, even the jumping and teddy bear choyas will work. And you pick them off. I have a whole tutorial on how to do it on the website that I'll post in the show notes. But those with some, you know, because you, you dehydrate them because if you eat them fresh, they're, they're slimy like okra. Okay. But if you dehydrate them and then rehydrate them, all of that slime is gone. And they taste like an artichoke heart. Ooh. Right? That sounds really good. (laughs) If I were out in Alpine and when I was surrounded by choya, you damn right I would make just buckets of that because that's something that you could give your clients that is uniquely desert southwest that they're never going to get anywhere else. Absolutely. Well, Hank, this this is all um, um, giving me more motivation to get you to stop by on your way back to California and uh, come in and give a tutorial. <laughs> I'd be happy to. I'd be happy to. So what what else should people know about these birds before we go? Um, I, I, I don't know if I've missed anything or if there's something that you like are dying to say about these birds that, that, that a listener needs to know. Sure. You know, the thing that I tell most people um, when they ask me what I love most about these birds is I, I love their resilience. Um, when you come out here and you're walking through the desert, and like I say, everything is rocky and spiky and thorny, and you're after these birds, and, you know, they're just so gorgeous, that that, that blue tinge that they have on those scale-looking feathers. They're absolutely beautiful birds. But you need to take that bird in the context of its surroundings, too. Some of this this country out here is, is spectacular. Uh, um, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you don't have mountains in West Texas. Well, we, we consider them to be mountains. But when you're out there on a ridge and you've got these beautiful vistas surrounding you and, and you've got dogs and your friends with you and you're chasing these beautiful birds, to me, it, it's that all-encompassing experience that adds to the experience of hunting your scaled quail. And that, I think, is is what I would really implore people to remember when they go anywhere chasing scaled quail, be it southern Arizona or New Mexico or out here in West Texas, is just to realize you, you're chasing a beautiful bird in some absolutely beautiful country and nine times out of ten with some great company and and so just to really enjoy that experience rather than than the bird in isolation yep yep i mean that's the beauty of upland hunting in writ large so there are virtually no calorie positive upland hunts right absolutely (laughs) absolutely I mean, I, I mean, I suppose it's possible to expend fewer calories than you bring home uh, in an upland hunt, but it sure isn't the norm. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, so what you're talking about is exactly right. It's it's we do this. We chase these birds for to put ourselves into environments that are often either 
very familiar to us or are new and different. And it's the entire thing that comes with a good meal at the end. And it's it's I hesitate to use the word ceremonial because it it gives it a bit more weight than I think I want to. But I also want to impress upon people listening to this is that upland bird hunters in general and quail hunters in specific, we are primarily interested in experiencing the environment in which that quail lives and to hunt and to hunt quail successfully in those environments shows that those environments are not messed up. Right. And, you know, we always tell people that if, you know, if I had a motto for, for hunting these birds or even for the business, the motto would be, I want you to have a great experience, not necessarily a great hunt, um, if, if that makes sense. You know, of course, we want you to have, have a fantastic hunt, too. That's why why you're out here. But it, it's more that holistic experience that that you should be looking at while you're out here chasing any of these game birds um, rather than just just focusing on um, bag limits on a bag limit. Right. If, if, if you're after a 15 bird bag limit, you know what? Don't come out here um, um, because, you know, you should be focused on having a wonderful experience instead. Yeah. It was like I said, like I love to hunt quail and I've shot a 15 bird limit exactly once. Right. Right. And I probably hunt quail more than most people too. <laughs> right. Yep. Absolutely. Um, you know, and I can say the same thing. Gosh, you, you know, I can probably count um, the number of limits that, that we've had with us over the past seven, eight years on on one or two hands. Um, you know, and that's not to say that there's there's lack of opportunity. Uh, it's it's just man, they're a tough little bird, and and you know rather slow down and enjoy everything else happening around you rather than being being too focused on on just getting that limit. Yeah, I want to do I one thing we did forget to touch on, and then I'll let you go. Uh, but is guns. So typically okay. yep. I shoot 20 gauge or under, and if I'm quail hunting, I I tend to shoot non toxic, so I tend to shoot steel sevens. Yeah. Uh, and that seems to work pretty good for me, but I'd love to hear your your thoughts. So I am a 28-gauge uh, devotee. Fancy, um, fancy. Uh, now, yep, um, um, a, a good buddy of mine um, um, gave me a 28-gauge a few years back. Uh, all of my other shotguns prior to that had been 12-gauges. And um, it kind of sucks because now all I do is I shoot that 28. Uh, the, the rest of the 12 gauge is sitting in the gun safe. Um, but I will say that on these scaled quail, because they they run quite a bit, I think they tend to to flush a little bit further out in front of you than than maybe your Bob White would. I shoot six lead shot. That that, mm. that is um, what I recommend to our clients as as the money maker on these birds. That makes sense. I mean, I think Prairie Storm makes a uh, makes a a heavy six as well, which is a. I mean, again, again, Prairie Storm doesn't pay me to say that, but I tend to use it when I'm up north. Yep, yep. Uh, you know, we, we get some guys who come out from from leases in South Texas, and they'll try to shoot. Um, these scalies with seven and a halves or eights because that's what they use on Bob White. And we just seem to get a lot of birds that get knocked out of the air, but then get up and run off and hide somewhere um, compared to, to using six shot. Gotcha. Um, that's good to so, know. 
Yeah, so with me, I mean, on, on the 28 gauge, six shot with modified and modified in the barrels, uh, that that's my happy place. Well, we've alluded to it this whole show, but I want to close by giving you a chance to let people know what you do, because you're kind of unique in the sense that, I mean, I brought you on the show primarily because of your expertise with the biology of the of the quail, but you also are an outfitter, so you're kind of a dual threat. So tell people how they can find you. Um, well, they, they can find us. We, we've got a very uh, simple Facebook, Instagram, and website name, uh, and it is West Texas Quail Outfitters. Type any of those in. We'll pop up on, on one of those three platforms. Um, and, yeah, if, if guys are interested in coming out and having a great experience out here and, and uh, walking the wilds of the Chihuahuan Desert with us after – the scaled quail would would love to have them. Very cool, West Texas Quail Outfitters. Which uh, it's kind of amazing that you got that because it seems like it would be a competitive name. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't believe it when I went into the, um, the 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 business development center and said, "Look, you know, can you guys run this name and see if it's available?" Um, and they did, and they came back and they said, "Yep, it sure is." And I said, "Okay, well, here's my fee. Let's let's get this this um, this limited company liability company set up right now." Very cool. Well, I will put a link to West Texas Quail Outfitters on the uh, in the show notes. I mean, this has been fun, super fun, and um, I am going to do my best to take you up on your offer and swing by Alpine in the in December. That sounds great, uh, Hank, and thanks for the opportunity um, to to chat with you. And yeah, please uh, come December, uh, give me a call, and um, let me see if I can convince you to to pop off I ten on your way home. Yeah, and I'll be uh, I'll be happy to cook for you because it sounds like it would be there would be a lot of good things to uh, to see in the environment to to put in a pot. That'd be fantastic. Well, that's our podcast for this week. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and I would like to give a guy's shout out to our sponsors, Filson and Hunt to Eat, before we go. You can always find me on social media and on Instagram. I am at Hunt Together Cook. In Facebook, I run a group. It's a private group called Hunt Together Cook, and you have to ask questions to get in. Just tell me you heard me on the podcast, and I will let you in. And as always, the core of what I do is my website, Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. That's honest-food.net, but you can also get it through huntgathercook.com. Again, it's Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. You will find literally thousands of recipes for upland birds, all kinds of other wild game, fish, both freshwater and saltwater, as well as wild mushrooms and wild plants from all over the country. Before I let you go, please consider donating to this podcast because your contributions help keep me independent and keep this show almost ad-free. I'm trying to keep it as minimal as possible in terms of number of ads and sponsors and things. So your contribution helps that. You can go to the website and contribute that way. There is a link called Podcast Donation, and any little bit helps. You can go everything from six bucks, and I'll send you a bumper sticker, or you can get one of my cookbooks for a $35 contribution, or you can go anywhere up from there if you want to. Again, I'm Hank Shaw. This is the Hunt Gather Talk podcast, and I really appreciate you listening to us. Take it easy, and I'll talk to you next week. Hey.